Best TV 2020. In honor of things wrapping up and us not explicitly having a segment on it, what was the best TV, in quotes, of 2020? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and the only TV season I can think of that I actually finished this year was the Babysitter's Club reboot on Netflix, so that is my pick. It was great also. Oh, shit. That's a really good one. Um, I'm Matt Patches, and I don't know if it's the best, but it is (laughs) the most TV. I'm going with Raised by Wolves, the HBO Max Mm. sci-fi series where so many people blow up. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and given how the year was, and I look back on things I actually like, enjoyed watching uh, a great deal, it's the final season of The Good Place for me. The fact that The Good Place ended this, this year, year I'm oh on God. the Wikipedia page to confirm this, because that is insane. That is, <laughs> Jan- oh boy. January 30th, holy crap. That was before we we knew. Before we receded into the ocean, oh it be- became not a wave anymore. Wow. Um, is that a good a good place spoiler? I wouldn't wow. know. I a good place. You've had all year and nowhere to go. Uh, I bailed out somewhere in the middle of the second season, not because I didn't like it, just because I don't know. Life uh, took its turn, took its course. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I've watched so much television this year. I feel, um, and uh, uh, most of it Terrace House, but. Uh, I, in addition to Ted Lasso, which seems like the obvious choice that we were all thinking silently in our heads, <laughs> I do want to speak up for Luca Guadagnino's We Are Who We Are, which, uh, I thought while watching it was just a limited series and only towards the end realized that it was written in a more open-ended way than that. And, uh, it was a crushing thing to realize when it, as it was dawning on me that there was never going to be a second season of this lovely, <laughs> lovely little show um, that I thought was was human and wonderful and uh, right on par with his film work. And they built a whole base, a whole military base to shoot it on in the city around it uh, in Italy. And Jack Glazer gives a wonderful lead performance. And there's so much to love about that show. And that's probably going to be it. You can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 327. It is Pandemic 38. And it's the week of Wednesday, December 2nd, 2020. The last month of 2020. Holy crap. Uh, <laughs> that's also the day the, 1920, the 1933 Dancing Lady, the first film featuring Fred Astaire, was released. I like that. So Fred Astaire wasn't one of those people in like the old studios who's like in 30 movies before he became a star, just like in the background. Dave's doing a tap dance in honor of Fred Astaire. You can't see uh, it, though. I don't believe so, but as with all of these facts at the beginning of our show, don't Google it if you're going to email me and tell me I'm wrong. I'm going to ask Joanna, <laughs> I'm gonna ask Joanna, who knows more about Fred Astaire than most people, I think. Yes, so definitely. You're going to ask Cons- her now? Use this as or... an occasion no. to learn more about Fred Astaire. Everything you read is an opportunity to learn more, should you be proactive about it. That's a that's, great attitude. That's yeah. a oh. good line. No. Yes. Also, every episode of The Crown, but we'll we'll get there. This is the Crown. Well, that is uh, that that is a very watching. educational. Yeah, show yeah, for me. that's good watching. And that's there's some good reading that David said, and now you're listening. So here's your triumvirate. All you're all your, three monkeys. All, all of your senses. Uh, before we get started, David, I understand we have reviews. 
We do. We have uh, two reviews, and one of them is only a couple words, it seems, so we may as well read them both. Uh, my dude with five O's, like it's a this Gaia game. Let's see, one, two, three, only four O's, but the D kind of looks like an O if you just glance over. It says a pox and gives our show one star. Ehrlich is a pox on the critical community. Try him in The Hague. I feel like being a pox on the critical community is redundant. I feel like it's mm. it's like being a, a a pox on a virus or like a spore on uh, on a mushroom cloud. It's what if uh, we already put a implied pox by the on context. coronavirus and that cured coronavirus though. That that may not be far pox. from the science of that. I wonder. If, I, I actually I busted out the Hague as a reference on Twitter the other day in regards to where they should send people who emailed me on the Friday after Thanksgiving. Uh, I wonder if this is playing off that in any way, or uh, if there's just room for all of us in The Hague. Not all of us on this podcast, but I mean me and all of the other people who deserve to be there. My dude, thank you very much for weighing in. Uh, I don't necessarily disagree with your assessment, but this review was not helpful, I'm afraid, because... uh, I've already said those exact words to my therapist many times. Yeah. Um, you say five stars and say David Ehrlich should go to The Hague. We'll start processing his paperwork. <laughs> one star. We're not doing shit. God, a trip to paperwork? The... Really? Wow. Well, yeah. Well, you. I, I'd assume you guys you would crowdfund like, like, to send me to The Hague. I thought you had you to have like a tribunal one. in Nuremberg to get sent to The Hague. Yeah, I know. That's a lot of paperwork. So we have to outline <laughs> it's like the old joke, David's like, crimes against humanity. How do you get to The Hague? You know, podcast, podcast, podcast. That's true. That's, that is what they say. Um, DMB15000 says, you can't buy a bag of peanuts in this town without someone writing a song about you. Uh, I'll come back to DMB15000's name in just a sec. Let's read the <laughs> review real quick. There is a man, a certain man, and for the poor, you may be sure that he'll do all he can. Who is this one? This favorite son. Just by his action has the traction magnates on the run. Who loves to smoke? Enjoys a joke. Mm-hmm. No one? No one's going to go, ha, ha, ha. Come on. Who I'm wouldn't get to, a I bit know. upset if he were really broke? Yes, With Katie, wealth and you shame, should definitely know you've this. missed your moment. He's still the same. I'll bet you five you're not alive if you don't know his name. What is his name? It's Charlie Rich. It's Mr. Rich. <laughs> he doesn't like that Mr. He looks good old Charlie Rich. Mm. Uh, I did, are we also glad I named my child after Charles Foster Kane? Did I make that joke already? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you did, but that that explains to me a lot about Mank that I have alluded my understanding so far. Uh, DMB 15,000. So every morning when we wake up, my wife and I on the weekdays and, you know, are wishing we were uh, no longer alive and uh, are, are racing to get Asa ready to go to, to uh, daycare, we'll cycle through Spotify and play some music in the kitchen. And I've settled on like theme days. We have uh, Fleetwood Mac Fridays. Taylor Swift Tuesdays. Uh, uh, we tried out Weezer Wednesdays, but that was a little bit abrasive. Uh, uh, throwback Thursdays. And this morning, Elisa coined, even though it was my choice to play the music, I'm not going to hold this against her, uh, Matthews Mondays for DMB. Bringing me wow. back to my school. Wow. wow. We are tripping billies in the kitchen. Wow. Uh, every Monday morning. Uh, he Asa. wakes up in the morning. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's ants marching, but yes, Asa could not be more excited to get out of here and go to take care. Um, Does Asa yeah. have a, a anyway. puka shell necklace yet? Or? Ooh, is he wearing flip flops? 
He's he's making a Pouchon necklace at daycare when they send us those proof of life photos of him on the Apple yeah. News. It's just like him making a we listen fucking to, getting high and smoking. We listened to Guster on a long car ride a little while ago. Damn. I don't know, man. It was good. I mean, nope. you gotta be exactly my age to enjoy it, but I had a great time. I I, I went through a Guster thing once upon a time and then going to a Guster concert in Central Park where it was on a bill with Ben Folds five, I think broke me. It was seeing oh, I was at the that people concert. in the you were? It was seeing me in the crowd that broke It was seeing you. you in the crowd. I was like, I, I want nothing to do with oh, this. Oh, no. No, it was uh, it was all the Guster fans. That song, it's like track two on their most popular album, I guess, where they count down. It's like four, three, Wait, two, one, whatever. Yeah. yeah seeing all the people in the crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like faux dispatch. Down. Anyway, uh, seeing all the crowd count down on their fingers was like, I cannot. Like, my soul left my body. Wow. It was just a Are little bit too fancy? sincere for me. No, it was It was just like there's a part of me that could not let go and just be in that moment. Um, that's my problem. Anyway, uh, for all of you jam band heads in out there, you Matthews fans, uh, you people who once a year read the Wikipedia page about the time Dave Matthews dumped hundreds of pounds of his poop uh, from a tour bus onto a group of tourists in Chicago, uh, please go on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room, and leave us a review. Good, bad, anywhere in between. Weezer. Taylor Swift, Dave Matthews, the three genders. Pick your flavor. I'm trying to think of what your W for Wednesday should be instead of Weezer. What's like a uh, Waxahachie Wilco? Wilco Wilco Wednesdays? Oh, Wilco Wednesdays. Wilco Wednesdays is a good vibe for the morning. Uh, Waxahachie Wednesdays, I think, fits better over the summer when it's a little bit brighter outside. Mm. Um, But not a bad choice. You do like Fleet Foxes Fridays, just really lean into the winter gloom. No, Fleet, White Fleet Zombie Mac, Wednesdays. Fleetwood Mac Fridays. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, Fleetwood, I, forgot, I forgot Fleetwood Mac had that unlock. Yeah, that's a good choice. Okay, leave us a review. This Thanksgiving holiday weekend-ish, I don't know, it's so blurry. Was it a holiday weekend? It just felt endless and so short and I don't disrupted and I was out of my mind. And and a presidential the... transition started that everyone got the coronavirus. Is that oh. what it happened this week? In no, it happened weekend? before Thanksgiving started. Yeah, it was like last it was just month. Everything was like a downfall from that, that event. Everyone I getting coronavirus has been a continuous process. Life is, is moving forward, but it feels like it's moving backward. Actually, that's the perfect sensation for this show that I wound up watching uh, all six episodes. The finale premiered on Friday. It's called How To with John Wilson. It's on HBO and it is, as uh, Katie was mocking me just before the segment, I called it a genuine masterpiece. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stand by that, and I feel I like I didn't know you many... wrote the deck on Polygon.com. I thought you know it could what? Be I do it all at Polygon.com. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's HTTP. But no, um, yeah. So, how to with John Wilson? I saw a bunch of people who I I trust kind of tweeting about this show. Haven't seen anything like huge review wise i wasn't seeking it out so i didn't know too much about it but i just saw i saw the tweets so i had to check out how to how to with john wilson wasn't familiar familiar with the show at all but i i, I found out that nathan fielder of, of nathan for you produced 
the series uh, with Michael Komen, who is a comedy writer here in New York of, of many, many things. Um, but I don't know John Wilson at all. So, and, and I don't do the homework. I, I don't show up to a new show trying to figure out like what it's going to be about to make sure it's for me. I have to dive in blind. And I'm really glad I did. Well, no. That's a stupid thing to say before you talk about it on a podcast where you recommend it to people because we're going to talk <laughs> about how to with John Wilson and we, and we should talk about it because all four of us as New Yorkers, I feel like we'd have a, a, a special relationship with the show. I think it transcends. It's about it's basically this guy, John Wilson. He's a documentarian. He has a camera with him. What seems like 99 percent of his waking time on this planet, he's filming mm-hmm. constantly and seems to have been filming for years and this and the show is first person. It's all through the lens of his camera. Yes, we're seeing what he's seeing. You basically never, never basically see never him. see his face. Yeah. Yeah. Um and the show is I mean, I guess in a kind of Nathan for you way, the premise is each episode's gonna explain how to do something. So the episodes are very mundane. How to make small talk, how to improve your memory, how to cover your furniture with like plastic, how to make risotto. These are the these are the episode names. Uh and in true Nathan for you fashion, as John Wilson starts interacting with people and making observations in the world, the episodes start spiraling in, in different directions and he starts having other revelations. I think there's two components to the show, how they're telling stories. Uh, one is through this just endless amount of tape that he's put together over the years, is able to kind of build narrative poetry or, or, or storytelling through just like random insert shots of weird things happening in New York. And the other is that he seems completely fearless when it comes to I don't know, walking around town, he wants to make risotto, he wants to find an Italian guy, so he sees someone with an Italian flag in their backyard, he will walk into their backyard and start talking to them. Um, just a, something I would never do, because well, I'd be way too scared. Well, you don't see the start of that conversation, so That's you don't true. know. And you don't see we'll all of this. the, uh, I would imagine, people he may have approached um that were less less inviting i yeah this show is a, a a masterwork of editing making it all seamless making me feel like john wilson is super fearless um and the comedy is there i mean this is a really funny show in the nathan for you vein where uh, john wilson's he he also narrates the show and he has a lot of like uh, uh mm, he's kind of I don't want to say Woody Allen esque anymore. That's just that seems like out of vogue. But um, yeah, he's he's an awkward guy. He lives by himself in a building with an old lady landlord, and he's he's a weird guy. He's a weird guy. It's also and, not as much about him yeah. as the Woody Allen comparison. I think is making like he he has more of an everyman quality. I think than Woody Allen ever did. Like he's not the star of most of the interactions that he's happen that he's having. With some people. of the some episodes are like that, but some are more like. Uh, my friends took me out for a birthday dinner, and I don't understand what, why they're like trying to use their corporate cards to pay for this. Why are they? Why don't they take take my friendship seriously? And then it does kind of spiral downward into his own neuroses. But sure. um, yeah, uh, you're right. Like he's an ad- he's going on adventures too. I mean, one episode takes him. In the small talk episode starts with, uh, I'm going to film everybody I see in restaurants trying to make small talk and figure out from afar what is successful and what's not. And then somehow he winds up, winds up at MTV Spring Break, where <laughs> it, John Wilson should not ever go, um, which is perfect because not only does he meet 
lots of bros getting drunk and getting existential accidentally when they meet John Wilson. Um, but he also ends up in the shots of actual MTV spring break and MTV employees need to usher him out because he looks like an old man with a big beard, even though he's maybe in his early thirties. He, he, he keeps turning around to, to face the MTV yeah. camera. <laughs> that part made me laugh so hard where he's just like despondently facing the camera and the crowd with spring breakers. And yeah, I related I- deeply. So after all this, I don't know if I'm doing a very good job of explaining the show. What do the, uh, the three of you well, make there's... of this? Why does it work so well? I think what's interesting about the MTV bit is that like most, if not all of these episodes, it ends on this sort of bittersweet kernel of something human. I mean, he finds someone, he meets someone of all the people I'm sure he introduced himself to when he was there, who's really on one, as the kids would say, you know, who is in a really emotionally turbulent time in his life and has some real pain underneath his uh, hard partying brosif ways and find something kind of real there just by just by looking uh, and looking mm-hmm. closer than a lot of people would if not for, you know, you know, who don't have a camera strapped to their face at all times. Um, and so much of what I love about the show, especially as like a New York object, is that it looks at all the things that are happening right in front of our faces um, with a clarity and with a with a persistence that we are either too afraid to show ourselves or, or don't have time for or whatever the case might be and just follows where those threads lead. And there's a lot of really, uh, you know, associative editing here where he is cobbling footage together to make visual puns, shots that may have been shot months, if not years apart and have nothing to do with one another. And that's all well and good. But you know, in like one episode, he he gets obsessed with signs and he meets a sign maker and he winds up at a referee store and he follows uh, the referees to a really sad looking referee dinner uh, in like New Jersey or something. Um, it's in Long and you know, Long Island. Uh, and and uh, and there's some weird business with a television raffle there. And it's like and, you know, he has he has his narrative, you know spackling reasons of, of logic that all these things come together. He's talking about rules and regulations and uh, is able to apply them to have some sort of smooth flow from one thing to another. And there is a lot of fun in charting the distance between where an episode starts and where it ends. The plastic furniture one in particular, I think, is, uh, if that's yes, the one I'm thinking warning, of, that ends... male genitalia in that episode. I mean, I, there's nothing that can really prepare you for how, where that episode goes. <laughs> um, I, I was truly, in a way that happens, you know, watching something Thing maybe once or twice a year, flabbergasted by a what I was disarming seeing. your subject as a as a documentarian. Just really, it, it's all I mean, out there in that episode. He finds. I mean, I'm sure you know his success rate is a lot lower than we'd think because there's you know hundreds of hours on the cutting room floor. But he finds people who want to tell you who they are desperately um, and feel no shame about that. And if you find those people and ask them to open up, they will. And uh, that's why you end up on Spotify looking for an album that a guy wrote about his uh, anti-circumcision beliefs. So, you know, these things, <laughs> these things happen. Um, and, anyway, and maybe, I'll let... Um, you know, like the New York project of it is, you're right, David. And I think Dave and I both had the thought of like having lived in New York and moved away from it, like how much it makes you miss New York deeply. Um, but it, I also wonder about how much it is... The, the, so much of the goodness of it is a function of it being a pre-COVID document and it gets in the final episode like everyone had talked about like why the finale was so great and as I got halfway through it like I don't want to spoil it too much but it does acknowledge 
coronavirus and kind of has these very specific moments of what early coronavirus was like, including like a bunch of people in line in the grocery store buying toilet paper because the pandemic is coming, but standing really close together without masks on. And you're like, holy shit, we did that. What were we thinking? Um, but it's so powerful. We told you not to wear masks in the beginning. I know. It's Don't hard to remember. Remember that? Um, that was fucking crazy. It was that really was crazy. crazy. Because, I mean, it had to do with the shortage of, of masks that sure. uh, yeah. you know, yeah, emergency no, there was, workers there needed. There was a reason but, for it. But the rhetoric was really corrosive because the first message that we got was not, you know, spare masks for the people who need them, but don't wear masks. I remember wearing a mask to a grocery store and feeling like uh, I was, I don't know, I was like showboating, <laughs> like being, uh, like hoarding this, this one mask that someone else could have been, should have been using to save lives. Wow. Uh, anyway. It is really powerful because, you, like, the Small Talk episode. I've watched two episodes, Small Talk and Scaffolding, and then the last one. Um, but just, like, watching the way he can, like, go out in the world and observe people's behavior and, like, watch a guy, like, shadow boxing like, in front of a parking garage or, like, couples, like, talking on the street or, like, people laying in hammocks outside PS1, like, talking to each other. It just feels like the way that it captures natural life, especially natural life in a city where everyone is so on display, it will make you, like, powerfully nostalgic for it, I think, even if you haven't lived in New York. But it also, I mean, some of it is nostalgia. Some of it is like we could all stand to be more observant or just take yes. a deep breath and look around. I mean, some of the footage he gets it's is kind the of American stuff. beauty, you know? It's it's truly mm. some of the wildest things ever, just like from filming a bunch of garbage in the subway and zooming in and seeing a little mouse poking out um, from like filming the front of an apartment building that EMT people are coming out and and capturing them dropping a body on the ground like where how do you get to those Kyle places McLaughlin at the right swiping time? his metro card 14 times sure. yeah that's the one <laughs> but scene I that's the one that... scene I'm like is that was that a construction i don't know no i think know. i think seeing celebrities you know embarrass themselves with their metro cards is as common <laughs> and routine a thing as you can find as pizza rat yes but i think you know part of the thing about the show is that we see all of these things just moving around new york city those of us i mean i, mean, I guess i'm speaking to no one now who did not abandon this city for <laughs> greener pastures i see these things moving around the city back when i could and uh we, we they just don't seem as remarkable without the lens to sort of refract them through. I mean, it, it yeah. goes back to the first day of film school when the, the lecturer was in the, the documentary class. The lecturer was in the front of the class and he was projecting a live video of the lecture that he was giving on the screen and talking to us about how all of our eyes were instinctively drawn towards the projected image uh, because the light you know of it and so on than we were um, rather than watching this human being talking in front of us. And I think there is an element of focus and clarity that comes into it where it's all these things are sort of touched by the context that we give them. We see them on camera or through the lens of a camera or on screen or through the lens of a camera. Whereas, you know, we don't necessarily see the the Lester Burnham beauty of it all uh, when we are waiting at Hoyt Skirmerhorn for a subway for 10 minutes and we see a family of rats scurry by below us. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have the same uh, winsomeness. So it, it, there is, I think, something to that and also why somebody like John Wilson is looking at his entire life through this way. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, for better or worse, I mean, he's been doing this. This is sort of his shtick away from the HBO show. The HBO show is sort of an outgrowth of a lot of the videos that he'd already been making. He did one with Vimeo where he went to Sundance, which is a place that he resents and uh, made a video that ends with him taking a bag of popcorn chips up in a helicopter to see if it explodes. Uh, because oh, the altitude. He, does the, he does that on the show. Yeah. Uh, and he, I mean, there's a number of videos like that. Um, but yeah, I wonder, I, I, I certainly like, I think 
the amount of time, the percentage of his life you'd have to spend looking through his camera lens to make a show like the one that he's made on HBO suggests that he spends very little time looking at his life through any other way. Um, I mean, he also and, keeps journals of every single thing he's ever yeah. done for years and years and years every wow. day. It's I a, like that this came off so personal for you guys because it is a great work of fiction. And like, I doubt that's his landlord. Like, I don't think any of this is oh, really interesting. I, I, yeah. I really Whoa. did not get that vibe at all. I mean, admitting that, you know, talking as we did about all the editing techniques that have to come together just to stitch these episodes together and give the impression of a coherent through line. Uh, there are limits there, and wait, I, I don't need to hear Dave's crack so, theory. I don't think I don't for a Dave second believe off. that that is not his landlady. Conspiracy theory time, Dave. Go. Yeah, um, uh, there's a really nice woman who lives underneath him that we see under the conditions that he wants us to see. Like, I that woman doesn't Mama. have to live there. She, yeah, she didn't. She could be an actress for how much she's actually in the thing like as so i don't do this work so i don't want to speak as somebody who does this work because i work in animation but as somebody who works on a reality tv show these are the problems that you see papered over by like franken quotes and whatever and so much is saved by having this first person view that can relies completely on montage and your storytelling to tell people that two things are actually involved so, like, he books a trip to MTV's Spring Break, talks to everybody, finds the dude, then decides to do an episode on Small Talk. It doesn't oh, go that, in... Oh, that, that of course. seems sensible to me. Like, the editing yeah. of it, like, that the, the, he is structuring what he's captured on video around a theme that he comes up with later. That makes perfect... Like, or, like, in the yeah. final episode, like, that he had the idea to make risotto at the same time that COVID was beginning. Like, I don't think those have to add up for it to be... I don't know. I and it doesn't necessarily isn't. have to be risotto, except that his landlord supposedly likes it, but we never see her actually say that. It's all a construct, which means that none of it has to be real, which is why I, th- I like. I think it's part of its brilliance that it reads as real to everybody, because I don't think it, it's like... But see, I, book- I see I see the landlord as real, but the risotto as the kind of Nathan for you style, like, I'm going to do this thing to create scenarios in real life, right? He He is devising things. To yeah, I think if any of the reality. people are false, it's disappointing. The constructs around them can be as fictionalized as they need to be for me oh, to feel like the, the show is being fake. honest to me. I'll be upset. I mean, it just it seems like uh, that's not part of what you're necessarily buying into because regardless of you know what the real truth is, the show, the whole point of the show is it sort of burrows down into whatever the truth of a really it's superficial thing is. Static truth. Sure. And I think that's what makes it great. Like, I don't think it's, you know, the he doesn't have to have asked, you know, 20,000 guys how to make a, you know, authentic risotto. He just has to go down to, like, his neighborhood shop, and he's like, who's, like, the loudest fucking cook you know? And then, you know, <laughs> book me book me two hours with him. I'm going to, like, ask him a whole bunch of questions. And, like, anytime, no, like, the rules of uh, reality television are if you don't, see like a uncut clip with everybody who's speaking their mouths on camera then it's it's up for it's up for grabs yeah which i'm not i don't want to say like you know this is all fake and therefore don't watch it i'm saying it's even more brilliant that we could all have different readings on how much of it was fake and how much of it is authentic because i think it gets an uh, authentic base somehow yeah which is makes it i think the 
like one of the best reality TV shows I've ever seen. I think well, it's important that the people are real, though. The, is all the like footage he's gathered, right? He yeah. A lot of it is not fake. A lot of it is just shot on a whim. Like you those guys were like stuff. playing backgammon under the scaffolding for real. Like, and they're not characters right. in the show. But like that's like I feel like what's so important about the show is that it's capturing real human behavior, whether it's a situation he's contrived via editing or like kind of a stunt or you know, have him having an honest conversation or like watching paramedics drop a corpse. Like that's, it's, it's observing people being themselves. That's what's important about the show. Not the, like the plot. Right. And then deciding sure. to go to MTV spring break is not, Oh, I went on vacation and made a mistake. It's, Oh, for this episode that we're starting to conceive, I'm going to go down here as a yeah. stunt and just do my thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So it's like, I am going to hang out with an old lady who leaves food for people in her building at the top of the stairs because she can't do stairs very well. And then That's I need a harder two one shots for me to believe. Yeah, I don't like, I don't like this window. theory at all. Yeah. He leaves the apartment to vape because he has, doesn't want to vape in front of her. But oh, really, that's just a plant for the second thing in the episode. Fascinating. Like, it's all just well-constructed television. If that happens... Whether or not it's real. Oh, man. This is taking me back. I don't... Have we ever talked about this? Or have any of you seen this um, short film, No Lies? It was directed by um, Mitchell Block in the 70s. It is something that we watch at NYU... Uh, that's how I saw it, but it's in the Library of Congress National Film Registry. You can see it on YouTube, I'm pretty sure. You know, it's like 15 minutes, and it is basically Mitchell Block is a documentarian who is shooting his friend, getting ready for, um, getting ready for like the night out. And as she's putting herself together, like putting her makeup on, she starts talking to him about this just like horrible incident where she ended up, she was raped and went to like the hospital and she, she's like recounting this whole story. And at the end it's like credits and actually she's an actress and it's fake. And you sit, and I remember watching this with a group of NYU students and people being outraged. Like you can't, fake that you're not allowed to fake that and it's interesting dave i'm, I'm having this reaction now just thinking about <laughs> if some of the elements of the show are fake would i care Werner herzog would tell me stop it like that's what the exact truth might be all about like just do what do what is make people feel like it's true tell people truths through the filmmaking that by by any means um I, I worry about Dave's paranoia if he is questioning the the <laughs> landlord. I mean, no, I Dave, is, Dave has, the election has did well happen. Learned. I just want you to know that he's well earned paranoia. I think. <laughs> anyway, anyway just say uh, the landlord you, is the landlord's perfect. The landlord, uh, the is, landlord perfect is perfect character for him to be living above during coronavirus. It's definitely weird, though. I'll tell you that if it's real, they, they have. It's but strange. I believe, like that living situation in which apparently you know his apartment is essentially open to hers would not work for me uh but i believe that it would work for him and the kind of person that he is <laughs> no, she uh, so lo- you never lived in an apartment building like this where like you two, two floors, floors and like you go up yeah Katie, like- i was when when elisa and i were looking for our first apartment together i was shown an apartment like that where like the, the common space the living room for our apartment would have been in the same contiguous space as the living room, the room below us, and I, I, I don't think that's just what like, apartments. I don't think never so either. I thought they just like shared a hallway. Like it's one railroad apartments. Yeah, we yeah. learned we learned live that the Sundance that the chip bag is actually from his Sundance footage. So I'm just yes. saying maybe at some point there was a cute old lady. Look how cute this landlord is. You story. 
that became the fucking it's my landlord and I need to cook risotto for his story. And that's fine. That's it is. So that's that's what I would entire allow, project is. I would allow that the timing may not be as he laid it out, but I am not willing to go past that is his landlord. Anyway, uh, all prove right. me wrong. Yeah, I would love to hear the answer for this. But either way, uh, you should check out How To. It's on HBO Max right now. The undoing. Some shit got undone what? over these last. This is a six full weeks. spoiler mini segment. What got undid? I mean, it's un- it's a full spoiler mini segment as like a charity, as like a gracious act of altruism <laughs> to anyone out there who was thinking about sinking six hours of their life into this show, no matter how much free time you might have on your hands. Uh, the undoing is a show that could not have been better designed. For people who are nine months into a pandemic and desperate for content to watch on Sunday nights, uh, it is uh, written by David E. Kelly, who has written every other television show you have literally ever seen in your life. Um, <laughs> and it was directed by Suzanne Beer, who used to make movies and now makes uh, high-end, low-brow television, like The Night Manager, which uh, was really like masterpiece theater compared to this. Um and it was on HBO, and it was based on a book that doesn't even have a Wikipedia page, as I learned last night. Wow. Uh, so someone, someone sourced it well. Um, <laughs> did you know that – or or I was researching today, Orion Lee, the star of First Cow, has a Wikipedia page. What? Because he was in The Last Jedi, oh, right. but yeah. not, not a Wikipedia page. <laughs> he was in <laughs> Skyfall, Justice League, and The Last Jedi, all in bit parts. The trifecta, the Yahtzee. Wow. Uh, and then, of course, his breakup performance in First Cow. Anyway, uh, The Undoing, it stars, and this is, of course, why I watched it, both Paddington villains thus far, uh, Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman <laughs> as a rich, eyes wide shut like New York couple. Uh, he is an oncologist, very beloved and wealthy and she comes from a mega rich family her father's donald sutherland which should really be all you need to know and she is a psychologist and uh, they have a son who's played by honey boy star noah jupe who goes to a dalton like ritzy private school in manhattan and there is a beautiful bombshell foreign lady uh, an actress who i imagine you will soon be seeing in many many things but whose name i currently do not remember um and uh, she is all up in everyone's grill the first episode and mysterious and alluring. And who is she? Who, how, how do people know her? She seems fixated on Nicole Kidman. What's going on? And she ends up with her brains bludgeoned in at the end of the first episode. And Hugh Grant disappears and is quickly um, the number one suspect for her murder. And then comes back. And the show is really just about the trial that ensues. Their marriage, is he guilty? If it's not him, who else could it be? Uh, their marriage being undid, uh, everything that they know about each other being undid, their son's life undid, mm. that woman's head undid, uh, <laughs> my interest in the show gradually undid. Yeah, is, it, is suddenly, it keeping you with it throughout all of this? Well, it, it, it is and it isn't. You realize like the first and maybe the second episode have this veneer of prestige TV like maybe this is going to be a little higher brow. Um, I'd say by the end of the third or fourth episode and only of six, you know, it's like so gleefully stupid in terms of, of how it's careening from one potential suspect to another. Like every episode 
starts with you being convinced it's someone's guilty and then ends wildly different. And that, that really climaxes at the end of the fifth episode where it ends on this hilarious reveal where it's like, actually, it was the son who did it. Uh, and it turns out not to be the son. But, um, uh, what's interesting about the show, and this is really where we're getting to spoiler territory, is that it turns out really to not have been much of a mystery. I mean, it's one of those things where it tells you, Oh, pretty uncontrovertibly gives you solid evidence and motive and everything else as to why Hugh Grant would have been the killer and then uh, spends five episodes dicking around and leading you astray and convincing you of his innocence as he goes to jail and then gets bailed out and so on. And then it turns out that, of course, Hugh Grant was the killer and has been a sociopath and uh, Nicole Kidman, whose job it is to root out sociopaths. Well, I mean, part of her job. Wait, literally? was blinded. Wow. Well, I mean, her job, her, he is literally a sociopath. Her job is to be a counselor. I mean, identifying a sociopath would seem to be a valuable skill for her, but it is not the directive sure. of her job. Sure. Um, she does like marriage counseling and such. Um, but, uh, she blind to, uh, this problem in her own life, her own marriage, her own home, uh, because of confirmation bias as it's diagnosed sort of humorously in the show and, and sort of like pseudo psychology, uh, or whatever else failed to see what was under her own nose <clears throat> and then the show completely just farts out and ends in the most half-assed abortive way uh, on a bridge somewhere just like cut to a generic shop helicopters flying away roll credits i mean like really you feel people who are making the show losing interest in real time but hugh grant clearly having the time of his life both on screen and then in the press tour to follow wait uh, having which he's more really fun used. than he did in paddington too i find that hard to believe certainly not more fun in paddington too but he's used the press tour as an opportunity just to talk about how much fun he had with paddington too although he says that he was you know for him acting is torture he's a reluctant actor and acting in paddington too seemed to be as difficult for him as anything else but he is relishing obviously how much people love that movie and how much he loves it and like talking about showing his brood of children paddington too and not letting them go to sleep unless they have told him it's a masterpiece (laughs) (laughs) and and really endearing himself to me uh and it really all i got out of this show was that paddington 3 which of course needs to happen in our lifetimes that we've shown no signs of that coming true should be an end game style super paddington movie where phoenix Buchanan and uh, whatever Nicole Kibbett's character's name was in the first one that I don't watch nearly as much are reunited by a third supervillain whose identity I've toyed around with a bit in the past. Noah Jupe? Um, to not Noah Jupe. No, Just... it has to be a character actor of a certain age. Noah Jupe. It can't be a kid, please. Um, I mean, like Colin Farrell's been tossed about, but I think that's too obvious. He's kind of done the bad guy shtick in the Harry Potter spinoffs already. Oh, but, um, right. <laughs> Anyway, uh, undo, the undoing. undoing. <laughs> uh, we're we're going to bleed into segment three just by saying the biggest attribute of the undoing was that uh, it aired on a weekly basis. And mm. if this were a show that was just dumped online at once, like industry recently was, the entire last five episodes of that show's first season on HBO Max um, – I think a lot of people would not have stuck through it. Their eyes would have glazed over. They would have seen there's four hours left and bailed or watched it with one eye while they did their laundry. If uh, you, unlike me, is fancy enough to be able to do laundry in your own home. What's watching uh, with one eye and doing laundry? Is that so bad? Yeah. Isn't that how you're well, supposed to watch The Undoing anyway? It, maybe. But, I watch uh, things that but way. That's how I watch The I Crown. I will say that it's great. The, the Undoing for me was Sundays at 9 o'clock. I could, this would hold my attention for an hour. It would be a ritual to look forward to now more than ever. I mean, like these, 
weekly television shows are really a boon to my mental health in a way that a lot of the binge watching I've been doing has not been. Um, and I really appreciate it for that. And I think this year has been, as much as we've all delighted in the availability of content, has been a really great argument for returning to the older model where you can get bite-sized episodes of television, digest them, and have time to get hungry for more. Did you more. say bites? Quibbies, yes, size? quibbies. She's wow. referring <laughs> to quick I bites. walked right into that one. But the, those bites, they're not nibble-sized. They can't be, you know. Solid. Uh, full meals. Full size. meals. But that's what we want to talk about, segment three. The old binge-watching versus uh, spaced-out. Binge-watching. Yeah, State of the right. Union. And our show doesn't do transitions like that, so here's some Guster. Four, three, two, one. We're not the barrel of the gun. Oh, wait. I thought this was the segment. No. No. What? What? No, we do do transitions. No, I know. I thought thought when he said it was bleeding in, that that was the beginning of the new segment. We don't bleed in. Oh, keep, keep I mean, I can go in. back it's and fine. cut that in. All right. No, fine. no. We'll see, wait, see so, I screamed but, the undoing, and it could have been the end, and then David talking anyway, just now could have been the beginning. Keep this all in. It's fine. How to with how to with Dave Gonzalez? You know, it's all just <laughs> stitching it together. So, uh, but can uh, someone, can do one of you guys, tell me? There's going to be a guster at some point. Can one of you guys tell me what the industry term is for shows that air on a weekly basis? Soap operas? I don't know. Oh, no, that's a daily basis. This isn't a pop quiz. Like, is there a word for it? Oh, I mean episodic no i guess that's no. now everything that has episodes yeah week weeklies Weekly. actually hulu has a word for this because they have shows that are binge and then they have shows that are weekly releases i don't know i find that very hard to keep track of because like netflix you know everything's gonna be a binge hbo you know everything's gonna come weekly and doing both feels confusing i Maybe think it's I just, just still called weekly I mean, if that's how I would talk about it if I were talking to somebody in television. I would I would just call it a weekly show. And I think I'd say I think I'd still say airs because TV still yeah. fucking talks like that. So I think it would be a show that airs weekly or it's, weekly. It's show. on it's in the air via your Wi-Fi. That tracks to me. I think it would be like because uh, otherwise you're going to be talking about like episodic versus seasonal drops, and I don't think anybody talks that way in like TV world. Maybe in. Uh, colloquial talking about it world but apparently it's hard on david to have <laughs> an entire seri- single chunk of of episodic television to watch it once. do you guys not find that your eyes sort of glaze over when you watch five episodes of something in a row well, well i don't, I don't well, tend I mean, to y- do yes. that yes yeah yeah that seems like an interesting way to choose to watch i mean when it, it does happen to something like that i like to have like it to happen organically like, I kind of just flowed through Queen's Gambit because it was pleasant. Like, I didn't mm. feel like, oh, I, mean, I spent hours watching this chess show. I was just like, hey. And I, I just binged How To. I mean, the episodes were under half an hour, and we well, had how two hours an worth of time. And I, I just like anecdotally Gambit, talked to someone who watched Netflix's Dash and Lily, which I think is maybe six or eight episodes, but they're short. They're like 20 25 minute chunks and it's basically a movie that's been broken into a tv show so that was easy but to the, binge for something like the queen's gambit which i binged i mean this uh, speaks to how my brain works and like i'm like a fucking mouse in a maze you know with the lever that's giving them drugs like i don't have the power to not hit the lever again when there's more <laughs> uh content in there but um i binge watched the queen's gambit and i found myself paying 
even if the, the show was getting better or more intriguing, I found myself sort of uh, losing focus and drifting my attention over time just because um, it all feels just sort of a blob of, of content in that way. But if I were to watch it uh, every Friday night from 9 to 10 and I knew that was coming, I'm a very ritualistically driven person and I would know that I could give my full attention to that show on Friday nights. Obviously, this is a matter of personal taste and biochemistry maybe, but um, – I I don't I I think it's not helpful to ask people who function like I do to space it out when that content is available. I mean, when you are making a whole show available like that in an instant, you are playing into the tendency to watch it all at once. Sure. Yes. I mean, I think a lot of this also is you could look at it two different ways. You could look at it in terms of like a storytelling cachet which I think also has like a little bit of burnout that you're talking about, where it's just like, I got to absorb all of the story because that's what's there. Or you can look at it from more like a business side, where I think we're starting to see a little bit more of a divide um, with just like, if if you binge drop a model, that com- that your series has to have like some sort of legs because it has to be marketed steadily enough that people could pick it up, you know, like in the case of Queen's Gambit, like now over the holidays and still feel like they didn't miss the conversation. Whereas I think like something that airs weekly, there's still a push to do like event viewing. Like everyone's going to cover these weekly shows in the old model and not necessarily cover streaming shows in the same way, which I don't know if that... The thing that makes me think that it's like actually good to have this divide is because when it was one or the other, we'd end up with stuff like the uh, Netflix Marvel series where the entire season was sort of structured around having like a binge sag in the middle and they knew it and it was okay and that's just where the algorithm decided it was okay to sort of like have not as good episodes. Hmm. I had a binge like sag na- after Thanksgiving. I just wanted to yeah. throw that out there. Oh, oh. yeah, there we go. <laughs> Hong Kong. Hashtag binge sag. Um, <laughs> but I feel like that's something that uh, like for the the Mandalorian, it's the episodes are so expensive on their own and they're trying to drive weekly subscribers. They monetarily, it doesn't make sense for them to drop an entire season, even though that would be an incredibly bingeable show because it's not like you need to keep track of a ton of different plots or whatnot. Well, who doesn't want to, you know, and people want to, it's a tentpole that people would want to plow through. I mean, Uh, isn't the whole point of the Mandalorian though, that like every week it's like, you don't need to remember that much of what happened the week before. Cause it's just like the same guy and the baby and they're having an adventure. And like, it's, it's, it's episodic in that way. Well, but now his name is Grogu or something. So that's important. I mean, there's those there's things where it's <laughs> things like... Things do happen in the world of the show that advance the characters. I yes. did get spoiled that his name was Grogu. In terms of like recent TV, I think it's like... Um, mm, uh, there, there, there are times where if it's a prestige drama, even though it has like a premise, I want the episode to have its own premise. I didn't watch that much of The Crown uh, because I tried again, like I try every season, and it's just, uh, maybe it's not something about it is not propulsive enough that I'm like, all right, on to the next Crown. But for instance, like this newest season. That's why season, The Crown's great. Yeah. This newest season's like episode two, for instance, takes the Queen's, the movie The Queen's, 
like stag metaphor and reapplies it to Diana and Charles in a way where that episode's telling like one little story or the first premiere episode, you know, is building uh, to the IRA bombing and then sort of takes that out. So it feels like that's a little bubble, even though it's a like serialized story, like television episodes are still the way they're written. I think the good ones still able to stand on their own. Yeah, so, I mean the crown is like watching a bunch of movies. I don't. I have a tough time yeah. watching the crown because they're actually an hour long. Well, we might watch like two in a night, but it's like having a film festival at home rather than. Uh, well, the crown is anything. the crown is so rich and satisfying a meal. I find that yes, uh, Elisa and I watch one episode a night, and there is we we really love that show uh, more than some of my British friends would be able to understand, um, and. Uh, I see it as like the really highbrow, glossy whiff of trash that it is, but very well done, very, uh, very smartly composed and obviously very expensive. And there's no desire to watch more than one episode at a time because I feel so satiated at the, at the end of them. Um, and because of the way the show's structured, you can wait a week and go back and not really feel like you've missed out on anything, even though as Dave adroitly points out, there, the, the connective tissue is there. Um, it, it reminds me, of a much better show, I mean, my favorite show, Mad Men, which was really sort of a double-edged sword because it demanded your full attention in a way that binging, you know, watching four episodes in a row would really, I think, not necessarily have been helpful to picking up on all the details, but was also so dense and complex that if you let too much time pass between watching the episodes, you'd be liable to miss a lot of what was happening in the background. And so it's tricky, but um, I don't know. I, I got to experience the show both ways. We're we're lucky to be living in an age where that happens because like as somebody who's rewatching Lost one episode a week, if Lost was a show that was dropped on a binge, like half of its episodes would be worthless. Like all the the whole point of a show like Lost was just keeping the balloon in the air to the next season or to the next thing just to get renewed. So it's like after we sort of got to the period where we could end TV shows. Then suddenly it's like we overdid it. And we're like, well, if we could just end TV shows, what if we just drop larger chunks? Like it's a miniseries until it's not because that miniseries did so well. Here's the second, like whatever. It's It's been interesting to watch storytelling develop alongside of that. I'm just not sure how to necessarily cater to the Davids with content that I think works better as bingeable. Uh, your well, serialized your, your serials basically things that were like um, what Katie's talking about like a quick adventure and then you're out and then you could jump in any adventure like you could come back you could go towards it but I still want them in like 20 minute chunks I don't know sorry go ahead Patches I was going to say that I mean I can only go off my life and my job trying to track people's engagement with TV and and how to have conversations with people in this day and age, but it seems like the early days of Netflix binge watching is kind of over. Like I, I don't think people binge watch a lot anymore, mostly because of how quickly people seem to get to shows and the the the, the pure volume of how much they could be watching at any given time, like. I felt when maybe there were like five Netflix TV shows, binge watching was a thing. Ooh, the next one's here. Like, let's watch it all in a weekend. Um, And it seems to, I don't know, that seems to have gone away a bit. I can't really tell what's a weekly television show versus a binge watch. People kind of get to it 
when they get to it. It doesn't seem like the habit has really stuck. I can't think of a show that I felt think like I... everyone was racing to watch every episode that weekend. Like, what was the last Netflix show that had that aura The Great it? British Bake Off? But the Great British Bake Off is weekly. Bake Off is weekly, right? It comes oh, wait, out every Friday. You're talking about the you're talking about the oh the stream dumps. Yeah, the problem there is that we haven't had uh, Stranger Things. We haven't had a new season of Stranger Things. That was the only one that is was that a holding problem? out. Is that the only one? <laughs> that is well, not for the what to, for answering Patch's questions, that was the only one, at least Stranger from my said, observation. Yeah. Stranger Things that was holding one out. was like a binge exercise for people. I mean, it caught on slowly, but when people when I think were that, like, we're going to watch the whole thing because it felt like a movie. Yeah. I would think that went to the other two Stranger Things. I think Stranger Things is the Netflix property that you binge. Hmm. I, I think that might even still uh, be be the case. But in terms of, like, coverage, I can't think of anything else. I mean, I saw people covering The Crown over, like, three days, but those are, like, outlets, you know? Those aren't the average everyday person. Yeah, I mean, Vanity Fair, like, treats The Crown like the Super Bowl, and we had access to all the should. screeners ahead of time. So, like, this huge flood of Crown-related pieces went up on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday when it was, um, when it came out, because it's all this, like, research-heavy stuff. But, it, like, it, that's not really covering it. But if you're the in way... the weeds on, like, looking at data and stuff, you'll see that people... It'll be like the first weekend, everyone's searching about episodes one through three the most, and then everyone's yeah. searching about episodes three through five or something. Yeah. And you definitely think, see it staggered. Yeah, I do think you're right that like there's a uh, – it kind of encourages a relaxed pace, which I, I think Netflix would not mind. Like I don't know that like the being like you got to watch it on Friday or you're going to miss out. Like it's not really sustainable for most people. Yeah, I don't know how they pivoted in this way, maybe just by overloading people and people were forced to take their time. But oh, Tiger I think King. I think there was, but that that lasted a long time. I don't know if people binged it. Um, it just seems like Netflix has figured out how to have longer tales to the co- the cultural conversations of their shows, um, and maybe it's because people just have too much to watch and they slowly catch up with them, and it becomes there is a water cooler effect now. It just felt like in the early days of binge watching, there wasn't like. We we were all worried that binging would kill conversation. Like we're on to the next show next week, but it seems like there's longer tales to some things, and then ninety percent of television just completely disappears because no one watches it. Yeah. Um, and I, I I admit to accidentally um, my binge habits are accidental. I accidentally binged all of Big Mouth season four when I got those screeners. That's coming up later this month for people, but like a half hour animated comedy i i just plow through that it's funny and how much binging is and... intentional though i don't know that like accidentally binging something is that yeah different. binging is not an activity that's usually associated with like great attention to de- like great care and control but maybe that speaks to the television like are people controlling themselves more are people paying more attention are we in the era of no caring? they're more distracted by other stuff I've started saving shows to binge. Mm. For instance, I'm going to catch up on Discovery when I could watch Star Trek Discovery all at once, which is really the only time that CBS All Access didn't succeed with its, uh, we're going to have new Star uh, Trek every week for the rest of the year, which they declared like back in like June. And I was like, oh, really? And it was true. And it was fun. But that's like... They could have just dropped all that and been like, pandemic special, get your CBS All Access before you change the name. But they didn't. So it's it's <laughs> like they doled it out and I still didn't go for it because I'm going to just watch all Discover. I just caught up with uh, Bob's Burgers uh, last weekend. I was saving the first 
eight episodes of this season. Now, did you watch it all the way? Th- like, did you just watch eight episodes straight through? Like, when you talk about I watched binging Star Trek, are you binging it or are you watching like an episode or two a night for a week? I, it's like, uh, as it's very close to a binge. I don't know. It's like two hours break and then another two hours or something like that. As much as I could binge without actually, you know, developing some sort of sitting rash. Need Mountain or... Dew breaks and, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, gamer fuel. I will make an mm-hmm. argument for what David was saying kind of at the beginning about, like, having a, a weekly ritual. Like, I have developed, like, pandemic rituals. Like, and, and, again, as, like, a parent of young children, I wasn't leaving the house that much either. But, like, I have this podcast on Mondays. I have my, like, Zoom game on Saturdays. Like, on Friday nights, like, my husband does something. So I get to, like, pick a movie to watch. Like, there's something to be said about, like, here is a thing that's going to happen in my week. Every week, I get to sat, sit down and do it. And on Sunday, I thought that, like, 10 people were watching The Undoing. And all of a sudden, I got on my Twitter feed, and it was, like, at the Game of Thrones finale again like a bunch of people screaming <laughs> about plot points i didn't understand and so i guess a bunch of other people had been doing the same thing and like undoing twitter had been a place to go and hang out for weeks or at least it existed then um i mean undoing also like the kind of show it is spiraled quickly from like huh okay like i'll watch this on sunday night while drinking tea and it'll be fine to like what the fuck is happening <laughs> <laughs> so it really it really allowed everyone who had been casually watching it on their own time to sort of come together and uh Shout about it. Where are you going to find? How are you going to fill the undoing void then in the, going forward? Well, um, Elisa and I still have half a season of The Crown to watch. And uh, I will still be on somewhat even keel as long as there are new episodes of Below Deck every Monday night. And that is another season or another show that's going to ram straight into the pandemic at the end of its current season, mm. uh, which still mercifully has like 15 more weeks to go. Um and after that, I don't know. I mean, these these ads about new seasons of certain network shows coming feel more like threats than uh, than Dave's going to get really into the good doctor. Well, <laughs> I am really getting into the good fight, which oh, okay. uh, yeah, you've been doing that for a while. Yeah. Uh, um, wait, is the my f- dad? My dad at the beginning of the pandemic decided that uh, what he was going to do was watch all of NCIS. Whoa! Oh boy! And there's like 17 seasons or Whoa. some crazy shit. I find that so appealing in the same way that I love video games that are 200 hours long and and only want to read 900-page books, but often they get the better of me. Uh, NCIS, you know, I I wouldn't be able to watch one episode of. I feel like if my... That's if my dad ever gets into anime, man. we're going to have a real problem. Has your dad enjoyed like, oh, yeah. watching all the episodes? <laughs> your dad should watch all of Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while, he's like, I'm on season 13 episode. I'm like, great dad, go for it. And, and there's one episode of NCIS where the villain in the piece is actually based on my roommate at the time who was dating the daughter of the executive producer and broke up with her. Wow. So, oh, I thought this was still Dragon Ball Z for a second. <laughs> I got really excited. And they use both his real first name and last name, so I keep telling my Pick dad to, you know, let me know when he gets to that episode. Wow. I I am, like, you know, putty in HBO's hand right now, and I'll watch basically anything they put in front of me, but this whole murder at Middle Beach thing is oh my one... God. What, let's it's actually... like one murder mystery too far for me. <laughs> let, I mean, there have been several let, murder mysteries too far. Let's stick with this. That's actually something that shouldn't be episodic. It should be a binge drop. Is true crime? Podcast. I mean, there's also possible that that sh- that should podcast just be shows. a film or a podcast. Well, but like, well, there's. The- I, I sat through two episodes of this, and I was like, I'm already 
Like I've seen, there's just so many fucking shows, and the Nixium show is not technically a murder mystery, but it's all well. Part the, of the, vow, same bundle. the vow was yeah. like the vow a, was a good appointment viewing that we had this year too, and the last dance well, that was a big but one. But also, but also, the, the vow was seven episodes vow, too long. Yeah, if the vow would have dropped and all of it would have been there, and someone would have watched it till the end and been like, "This doesn't go where you think it goes," I would have been like, "Okay, cool," and just waited for Seduced, which is the better version of that story mm-hmm. that came out this year. Yeah, but, but the you thing need about stars the, to watch that. The thing about murder at Middle Beach and the reason I think it should be like a binge drop is it's it works out well with the assumption that he finds the killer, because if not, it's incredibly irresponsible to basically like be like, maybe my sister killed my dad. Cliffhanger. Let's spend a week on the Internet in real life in covid times. This is anybody can take revenge on my sister. That was the serial model where I, I remember initially being under the impression that this was a story that was being carefully teased out. And then towards the end of that first season, there was like a multi-week break so that Sarah Koenig could actually like go and do research. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, and so that's what I, I want to know if that's what the ending is because it's all shot in like 2013 and 2016. So if we get to the end of the series, he's like, and I still know who killed my mom. I'm going to be like, you accused every single member of your family for one episode. What? So you could just like well, get he- the person to tune into the next episode. I mean, he questions them, but it seems to be with a mutual understanding that, like, this is just doing due diligence and he's not actually accusing them of, of murder. But uh, there is, you know, and it's, it's, it's a terrible story. His mom lived in this well-to-do community in Connecticut and got sucked into uh, or was involved in maybe the creation of a big pyramid scheme. And that may have had something to do with her murder uh, and so on. And there are these spectacular details to it. Uh, and there is kind of a how-to with John Wilson feel about it. It's like very transparent about this kid who's not very old. It's got to be in his 20s. Um, sort of of doing the the legwork and the detective work to piece this together in a way that no one else will. Uh, and there, there's even like the police still can't rule him out as a suspect. I mean, there are some terse back and forth in the first episode when he goes to uh, record interrogation surreptitiously with them. But that it's interrogation just, it's all is just in like, every episode. <laughs> Right. And then like Errol Morris was tweeting today about how sorry he was for making the thin blue line because it's convinced a generation of people that uh, murder mysteries are all or true horror, true crime, like all documentaries can do. That's and what it, he was subtweeting. Does, I couldn't figure out what that was. I know. I, 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 I am not saying that he was subtweeting this particular show. I have no way of knowing that. He, he could have been, though. He could have been. In general, there's it's just it's just so much and it makes because of the tropes that the show was made around and falls into it makes what is clearly obviously the defining moment of this guy's life this profoundly terrible thing that happened to him and his family feel like another fucking show like just another fucking yeah. piece of content and it, it sort of uh, by only some fault of his own cheapens everything around it and that's watching that especially by after the undoing only, finale last night i was like this is too much tv by only some by, fault by of the, his, <laughs> go ahead, no, it's, it's gonna be by a large fault of his own if he doesn't find the fucking killer because if he doesn't i'm, I'm gonna be like i watched you place, but... drag around sandbags talking about how you didn't think your 16 year old sister could drag around your mom's body like that and i'm like that's exploitative television if you don't end this with i found the killer this is this is a, a one hour unsolved mysteries that is has to be solved or it's a irresponsible. Can you not? Which I'd yeah, like to know. Of, give me the binge. Do, do, any, do any of these shows do it or do they just go fucking, uh, I've already forgotten the Nixium guy's name. Uh, Pete Rainier? 
Keith Raniere was just like, oh, he was locked in prison where he is sitting and waiting for us to shoot season two. <laughs> you know, like there's always. What did everyone think was going to happen on the vow? Well, I mean, I thought they would like at least get to the sentencing, but uh, apparently See, that was I, never my part of their plan. Is that, my theory is that what, what uh, beyond the prurience of it all and just like the new details emerging, what kept people hooked on the vow was the promise or the hope of coherent, satisfying storytelling. Not so much what's going to happen to Keith Ranieri, which you could find in, you know, by Googling his name quickly. I mean, all this stuff was already in motion in real life. It was the promise that all of these sporadic, messy details would come together in a way that was more satisfying as a whole than they were in their parts. And that was the promise that kept me coming back every week. And it never happened. It only frayed more and more and more uh, before the it ended gut up being a series of, that was like, keep going. sometimes you accidentally join a cult, which is a weird tone to take for the Nexium story. I mean, some, some people do. Yeah, no, I mean, that's an interesting thing, but it, you know, maybe don't make a seven part documentary series just to make yourself feel better. <laughs> Damn. There's been a lot of Dave television advice this episode. I like it. Pulling back I the curtain. watch a lot of TV. Let me tell you why the Mandalorian's going in the wrong direction. What why voice it, are you doing? Why is yeah. the, wait real quick. Why is the Mandalorian going in the wrong direction? Katie, how much do you care about grand Admiral Thrawn? I'm a bad focus whoa, group whoa, for this. Whoa. Wait, you hold cannot on. be in the I care about Grand and they Admiral can have Thrawn. Thrawn in the show. That's not a bad direction for the show. You don't have to give a shit about Thrawn. Okay, I'm sorry. Maybe the ancient temple of the Jedi, which we eventually became the Grogu. Jedi Order. They're going to put him on a mountain and he's going to touch other Force users? Fuck all the way off. It was Star Wars D&D Wait. and I loved it. Wait, Dave turning on the Mandalorian is good content. <laughs> this is kind of what I'm here for. I like I liked the episode. I liked that it was you know Western. This meets is the beauty Eastern. of a weekly TV show. It's true. One minute Dave can love it, and the next minute Dave could be like, "Fuck Star Wars! Star Wars is dead." Wait, exactly. so are also, they are they leaving the ba- baby no on a mountain with Jedi? They're not leaving. No, he died. They killed him. Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) No. But there's no way that The Mandalorian, which obviously would have been a big deal as the first live-action Star Wars show, would have maintained this level of conversation and its place in the discourse if it were dropped all at once. No way in hell. Yes. Uh, Yes, true. And that's the point of The Mandalorian. I wish that I didn't have to deal with the show every fucking week. Believe me. But You're not enjoying The Mandalorian? Oh, wow. I'm not watching it anymore. Disney I gave up. The is first literally, season was torture. So good. Disney Every literally has torture. the, the Rise of Skywalker poop torture. in its hand and it's the so Mandalorian fun. in its other hand. And it could tell. It could tell exactly what you're talking about. You know what Rise I binge watched? Rise of Skywalker on... is modular nonsense. And Mandalorian you know what I binge is modular watched? nonsense. I'm sorry. But... I thought you were done. No, no, I'm very no, no, sorry. No. I thought you were done Let's twice. And you were... They're both modular. Yeah, what'd you binge watch, David? I binge watched a little show called Folklore. Oh shut the up! The pond, pool, pond studio Take sessions, whatever the fuck. Get out! And I fucking loved it. Fuck off! Album of the year, baby. Oh, I watched snore. Miss Americana finally. That was my contribution to the so good, so good, good, good movie. I, it's so good. I, I've actually been thinking about the movie a lot recently, and I, I really, really believe it's a very good movie. That you know what the album of the year is? Ludwig Göransson's Mandalorian. Season two soundtrack. Wow, oh I'm so glad we pivoted into music <laughs> criticism, which Ba-dum. we're so qualified to to weigh in. Well, on. We, you were the one who was talking about Wakahachi earlier this episode. So <laughs> I'm just thinking of things that start with W. That's my scattergories brain in action. 
Mandalorian? Well, we solved uh, Gongu? Go binge Grogu? listen to our podcast. Grogu? Yeah, we figured it out. Grogu. 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 Binge go to the polls. Maul Send Maul. us money. <laughs> <laughs> Mima. Mommy. Is it Mommy? No, wait. It's not Mima. It's Mo- Mammy. Momo. That does it for this week's show. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, in the meantime, tell people who you are. <laughs> are you John <laughs> Wilson? And, uh, that is really and, uh, this is uh, yeah. how you do the outro. I'm thinking, uh, are we think? talking to Jeff Bloom? I turn onto the microphone and um, then we do the, the next part. Yeah. Yeah. Next part. I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And don't forget, we have a website fightinginthewarroom.com where if you're just hanging out at your computer at your work and you don't have your podcast app open you can go to the website and listen to the episodes or you can sh- it's easy to share a link with friends to fightinginthewarroom.com mm. friends love fighting in the war room uh, I'm David Ehrlich uh, there was something I desperately wanted to shout out like five minutes ago and it's Grogu completely escaped my attention now it wasn't Grogu Mank? it wasn't Monk. Mank <laughs> It wasn't Monk. I was in a meeting with someone remember. who called it Monk briefly. Me Monk. Like, what are we talking about? I like, literally didn't know what they were talking about. Mom Monk. I, I can't remember if it was a movie or... Man-monk. Wait, no, it was... This is the part where you was say your mo- name and stop yeah. talking. Uh, fine, I'll come back to it. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. You can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich. Uh, I'm the pox of film criticism. Uh, or a pox of a criticism. And you can uh, find all of my pustule-like writing on IndieWire. And you find all of us together on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. And I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA7E. You can also find me on the Storm Lost Rewatch podcast, where we watch one episode of Lost every week, all the way through the end. We're in season four. You could binge our podcast as well, but it's like over 100 hours. I wouldn't suggest that. Take your time. Come join us. The Storm Lost Rewatch podcast. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com on the Little Gold Men podcast, where this week we're talking about Mank. Preview for our conversation on this show about Mank next week. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. And you can find all of us on Twitter where you can make sure you know how Pashas should pronounce Mama, Or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... What was the best TV, in quotes, of 2020? Thanks for listening. And, and we'll don't be- say small acts. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week.